So this is a, another edition of Paul Pod. We are here today with a very special guest, someone who has been a major contributor in the albums leading up to this Curtain Call 2 Greatest Hits compilation. Uh, she has been involved in many hits, many, many important moments throughout this time period from uh, the time period that this compilation covers which is from encore all uh post encore all the way up through today past uh music to be murdered by b-sides we are on today with none other than skylar gray hi so where are you uh joining us from today from my home in napa valley oh okay all right so you're very far away we are we're here on the east coast and we are going to talk to you about many of the things that you've been uh, involved in with Eminem um, since you guys met. And this goes back, uh, many, many people know, but this goes back to the first time that you guys collaborated, which was uh, Love the Way You Lie, which you wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you What do you remember about those days and like sort of, you know, leading up to Marshall recording that record and and it finding its way to him. And how how did that come about from your recollections? Man, it was such a wild story for me. Um, I was completely broke and living in a cabin in the woods in Oregon and just you're not just saying that like you were literally living in a cabin in the woods. Yes. Like fully in a cabin in the woods. I was trading work for rent because I had no money to my name. So I was like working for this woman and she let me live on her property. You mean like um, physical labor work? No, it was, she had like an art gallery in town. So I was like selling art. Oh, okay. So you were like chopping wood. No, I I mean, I was chopping wood to keep myself warm. There was one light bulb in my cabin. And so it was very minimal. The the toilet was outside (laughs) these retire times. Right. I had lost pretty much everybody, all my uh, relationships in the music industry, like I had nobody left in my corner other than my publisher. And um, because, you know, when you sign a publishing deal, you're just locked in for for life. So I reached out to her and I hadn't spoken to her in years. And I said, hey, I really need to figure out how to make a living in music because it's the only thing I know how to do. And so she introduced me to this guy, Alex, the kid over email. So I went to the Internet Cafe in town outside of where I was living and I would, I would go there and I would send him, you know, or he would send me beats and I would send him back little rough ideas that I recorded into my laptop and love the way you lie was one of those. And he said he was going to send it to Eminem. I was like, I don't know how that's happening. Like, but go for it. And I could not believe (laughs) when he was like, he wants to cut it. And then pretty much like a month after I wrote it, it was like a number one song. It happened so fast. 
It's crazy. Yeah. And, and that was, that did happen really quickly because it was one of the last things that Marshall had recorded for that album. So it, it was, it, it came in very late in the game, which means that the album was done and it was ready to come out. So by the time he cut it and we got Rihanna to do it, it was like ready to come out and it was just out. And I haven't ever heard your story, uh, like of how this all came together. The second I heard it, I, I just knew that it was incredible. And um, I brought it to Marshall and, you know, he, as he usually does when he's sort of thinks he's done with an album, gets irritated. Right. Because he's like, I'm done. Why are you bringing me more records? I don't need it. And then he heard it and he's like, you're such an asshole because he knew that he had more work to do. And he goes in and cuts it. And he said, all right, I'm going to play this for you, but I want you to know something. What? He goes, listen to it and then I'll tell you. Okay. Listen to it. Oh my God, it's incredible. You did an amazing job. What, what did you want to tell me? Well, now you need to put Rihanna on it. Yeah. And I understood what he meant because he, he, wanted, he wanted that element of, of power that would come with the idea that she was singing it, somebody having experienced that kind of relationship and having firsthand knowledge of what that's like and that, that, that trauma and pain and thought it would come through in the song and just, you know, in his mind, it, it had to happen. So then I, you know, was sent on another task. Not only did I have to, you know, go find this amazing hit song, now I got to go get Rihanna on the song. So that was a whole other process and it was an amazing process. But um, listen, it, it, it worked out to everyone's benefit and I think nobody would change a moment of it. Is it true that she yeah. recorded her part in like Dublin or something? Yeah, she was um she was on the road, I think. Yeah. So she had to do it when she was out in Europe. Yeah, I heard that because I always thought it was so crazy that like I never met Alex the Kid in person. He was in New York. I was in a cabin in the woods in Oregon. Marshall was in Detroit. Rihanna was in Dublin. And then the song was this huge number one. And none of us had been in the room together. Yeah. It's <laughs> modern crazy, technology. Like we're not in the room together right now, but we're doing this damn podcast. So exactly. tell me what what you remember about when you met Marshall, because I think what happened is shortly after we brought Alex to Detroit and you came and met him there. Is that how you recall it? Yeah. So I recall just, you know, I was working with Alex a lot at that point and you guys were working on Dre's album and I guess Alex got invited out and he brought me with and we um, presented I Need a Doctor and that was when I met um, for the first time. Right. So what do, you, what do you remember? And was Dre there or was he just working? Yeah, he was. Dre was there too, right? So what was that like? I mean, crazy. <laughs> I was really nervous, very quiet. You know, I mean, I grew up listening to um, So it was like, I mean, Stan was one of my favorite songs of all time. So to be working with him was just like a complete um, dream come true, you know? Had you spent time physically in the same place as Alex at that point? Or was that the first time you were with him in the studio too? Uh, no, at that point we had done a couple things in um, New York together. I think we had already written like coming home. Yeah, we were working on a bunch of stuff at that point. Gotcha. So Dre was there and you met Dre for the first time too, I imagine, which probably mm -hmm. equally terrifying it was but he was so sweet I was I was like I couldn't believe how kind he was he I remember him sitting me down in the kitchen 
just by myself. He was just like, I want to talk to you. And he was just like, thank you so much for coming and working on this. He just like wanted to sit me down and thank me. And I was like, you're amazing. <laughs> so like, okay. Kind. Thanks, Dr. Yeah. Dre. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? Am I in a dream? <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's pretty incredible. Those moments are, are amazing. Yeah. All right. So you, you start working with, with Marshall Moore and I was looking back at the catalog and looking at your discography together. And I realized that you're very, very relevant to this conversation about, you know, people who've participated heavily in the making of the albums leading up to this curtain call project, because you may or may not know this, but you were on or involved in every project Marshall had released except for Relapse and Kamikaze. Yeah. You had a record on or had written on every other album that's involved in this Greatest Hits package. So we're talking about, like, obviously, Love the Way You Lie, you know, Our House from the Slaughterhouse Project, Asshole from Marshall Mathers LP2, Twisted from the Shady 15 Project, Tragic Endings from Revival, Black Magic from Marshall Mathers, excuse me, from Music to be Murdered by 2, you know, just all over all of these projects. And, you know, you guys have such a longstanding relationship, and I know that you guys enjoy working with each other so much. And Marshall has appeared on, you know, records for you and your projects as well. What do you think is the sort of secret sauce or the the glue that keeps you guys coming back together and working on stuff together? I, I know that's a weird question in a way, but w- what do you think it is that that just sort of makes it work? I honestly don't know. I think it's just, you know, when you meet somebody and you have good chemistry, whether it's like, yeah. you know, whatever type of relationship it is, I just feel like musically we have like really good chemistry. So when I send him stuff, he likes it and he wants to, to work on it. You know, um, I don't really know how to yeah. explain it other than that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's music just sort of speaks to somebody and, and inspires them to create. Right. Yeah. So whatever it is about you and what you do has that effect on him, I guess is probably what you mean. Yeah. And vice versa, you know? Right. So going back to, you know, what you were talking about before, because a lot of people listening to this might not know, but if you look at Skylar Gray's page on Apple Music, for instance, and you go and you see, um, you know, there's always at the bottom similar artists. Uh, one of the similar artists on your page is somebody named Holly Brook. Who <laughs> is Holly Brook? That is uh, my first and middle name. So that's your real first and middle name. Mm-hmm. What you originally were recording under, right? Yes. Right. So the first time that I heard you, um, which I think is probably the same for a lot of people, was uh, the Fort Minor record. Oh, right. Yeah. So that was, um, you know, Mike Shinoda from Lincoln Park had a side project called Fort Minor and you guys had a single and it was huge. And what year was was. that approximately? I think it was 2006. So 2006. And how old were you then? Uh, I'm bad at math. I think I was 19 ish. Right. So long time (laughs) ago, you're 19. You record this record with Mike Shinoda. You're on the same label, right? You were on a Warner Brothers label at that time. Yeah, they had a little like label called uh, Machine Shop. 
on Warner Brothers. So you were signed to Mike Shinoda. Mm-hmm. Again, I need to know, how does that come about? Because you're originally from Wisconsin, right? Yeah. And is that where you were at the time when you met Mike and got involved in that situation? No. So I I grew up performing with my mom. We were, <laughs> we had like a little folk duo and I went solo when I was 14. So from six to 14, I performed with my mom. And then, yeah, I went solo and I quickly realized Wisconsin was not the place to have a like music career beyond a certain point. Like I'd reached my ceiling there. And so I, I dropped out of high school I was 16 or 17 and I moved to LA. I knew one person there, a songwriter, and he just like introduced me to some producers and I made demos. And then I met some dude in a hallway who was like, you need a lawyer and a manager. And I was like, okay, introduce me to somebody. And he did. I don't even remember who that guy is, but he, he introduced me to my first lawyer who introduced me to my manager. And my, that manager at the time was working at the firm which Lincoln Park, their manager was also at, at the firm. And um, once I got a sure. package of demos together, he handed it over to, um, I think his name's Rob McDermott. And he heard the the demos. And then <clears throat> I met with Brad Delson, the guitar player of Lincoln Park, at what, you know, the hotel now is the London, but it used to be called the Wyndham Bellage Hotel. And there was this Russian or I think it was Russian or something, uh, food like restaurant in the place that had a piano in the corner. And I sat at that piano and I played him a couple songs. And then literally like the next day they were like, we want to sign you. So about a year and a half after I moved to LA. So that happened pretty quickly. And when you were working with Mike, your style was pretty different than, than what it is now, or even, you know, the sort of evolutions that you've gone through to, to the point that you're at now with your solo work. What what were you trying to do at that point? I was trying to find myself, you know, trying to find my voice. And I was so young and inexperienced in the music game, even though I'd been performing a long time. It's different. It was like being in LA was like the big leagues, you know, (laughs) and I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I felt very green and And then out of nowhere, we had that hit and I didn't know how to like follow it up. I wasn't prepared for that moment in my life. Yeah. You're just expected to do it again. Right. So you're like, okay, well, fuck now. What do I do? I wasn't ready for this. Yeah. I kind of rushed an album out after that um, before I'd really found my sound, I guess. Um, But, -hmm. you know, it's all part of the evolution, part of the journey. And it's cool to see these little windows into my past through the music, you know? Yeah. I was really in a singer songwriter space, um, pretty acoustic driven. Right. And then I got more into hip hop. Makes sense. And do you, who were some of the artists that inspired you like back then? What, what were you focused on? What motivated you and who, who was inspiring you to create back then? Back then? Um, I mean, I can, uh, list some people from my childhood that, that always have influenced me, like Fiona Apple, um, Mm -hmm. Dido. Yeah. Yeah. There was like a a period of time when I, I, I went from like belting out like Annie, like Broadway. (laughs) And then suddenly I think it was puberty. My voice changed 
and it, it got like really delicate. And I was like, oh, I can't do Broadway. I can't like belt out like Whitney Houston. Like, and then I discovered singers that had more, you know, softer voices like Dido. And I realized that there was a world where that could live. And in fact, I like preferred it. So there was a lot of female singers that influenced me back then. But as far as like songwriting and production style, I I was really, and I still am, honestly, just like always exploring and trying to find something special and unique, you know? Yeah, totally. That makes sense. And, and you know, it, I guess as you, as you evolve and as you grow and as these, you know, different phases of your career have happened, that sort of foundation that you had built then is just the beginning. So you move on from there, you get through the, the Fort Minor phase, you get through the, the, the Holly Brook phase, mm-hmm. and then you go off into this cabin Right. Yeah. Like I said, I I didn't know how to follow that up, that hit. And so everything kind of fell apart. My album right. didn't do very well. And then I felt like, you know, just, just, just felt the like relationship. everything's mm-hmm. over. I'm going to go do something else. Yeah. And I just like I went broke. I'd spent all my money that I'd made on my record deal. Um, and so I, I was just kind of stuck. So. Sure. <laughs> so then we, we talked about how you got out of that. So. Then Holly Brook becomes Skylar Gray. At what point did that happen? Well, I had been playing with the idea of changing my identity for a while just because my past had been so tumultuous and I just wanted a fresh start Um, Mm -hmm. just creatively. I wanted to rebrand and and then writing Love the Way You Lie and having that moment um, happen in my career it felt like the right time to do it. Cause I felt like I reinvented myself at that point. And the other thing is to be honest, like this, this industry is, it's such a small world, the music industry. And I sure. was nervous that people had already prejudged me as Holly Brooke and I wouldn't be, you know, a new exciting artist. I'd just, you know, be Holly Brooke, the girl that failed. <laughs> so I wanted, uh, to make a new splash on the whole industry. And I, for a long time, I didn't even show my face. You basically wanted an opportunity for people to not be sort of have a predetermined idea or thought of who or what you were. Exactly. To have sort of a new, a new opportunity to become an artist. Yeah. But I think that the, the one thing that at least I notice is there's also sort of a shift in in the mood and tone of the music you were doing. I, I feel like it became, it, it, it started to have an edge to it, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. That, that, you know, is probably born out of all those experiences. But was that intentional or is that just a result of where you were creatively? Like, how did it become like not so happy-go-lucky and more of like, you know, a little bit dark and, and edgier? I don't really know. I think I was just evolving and changing and I always really liked dark stuff. I think when I first moved to LA, I got put in rooms with a bunch of songwriters, you know, when you're so young and malleable, I think at that point they just were like seeing me as like some little pop star, (laughs) even though it wasn't totally my vibe to be 
that bubbly, I, I just felt like I had to follow what the experts were saying or follow these songwriters that had experience. And so, you know, I went down those paths and then kind of found my way back to stuff that was a little edgier, which I've always liked. Yeah. There's a certain, I would say, you know, tone of of, of melancholy that, that sometimes appears in your work, which I love, mm-hmm. right? It certainly is 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 pronounced and you you know you feel it i think i i learned to i think when i originally started writing songs in la i was just trying to write catchy songs and then at a certain Mm -hmm. point it turned into just writing songs that really made me feel something or that i was expressing like a true emotion i wasn't trying to contrive anything or, or you know just write a hit it was just about writing what i felt sure Yeah, well, I mean, that's really where the great stuff comes from. For sure. So you have four solo albums, is that right? Uh, I guess if you include the Holly Brook one, yeah. And the latest one was the self-titled album you released this year in April. It's yep. the first time that you were independent as well, right? Yeah. Did you feel free? Did you feel unsupported? Did you feel secure, insecure? Like what what what's the sort of post log on your on your feelings of releasing an album independently versus a major label? I mean, on a creative level, definitely felt totally free, you know? Yeah. I had to learn a lot of hard lessons, you know, you don't know how, what you have till it's gone, so you complain about your label when you're signed, but then you complain about not having a label when you're not signed. <laughs> so there was a lot of aspects of having a label that I missed. Mm-hmm. Like right now, I'm totally independent. I don't even have a manager and I'm set, shipping uh, my merch out of my own house. Wow. So it's amazing. Which I honestly, I thought it wasn't going to be that big of a deal. But then when I dropped my album, uh, I had so many orders coming in. I was shocked and I couldn't keep up with it. So that was cool to see, though, from that perspective, because I never knew, like, how much merch am I selling? So to have, like, a firsthand view of, like, what is really happening and what fans do I have that are actually willing to spend money and stuff, it was a really cool perspective. I think moving forward, though, I would like to get a little bit more of a team together because it just it cuts into my time to be creative, you know, doing all all of this other stuff. I'm like, ah, I want to make music. Right. (laughs) And probably gives you paper cuts as well. Yeah, exactly. I, I can only imagine that's got to be that's 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 a lot of work, a lot of a lot of shipping labels. Do you think that moving forward, if you had to choose, is it is it like, you know, 50 50 or are you happy being independent? Like what's what's the vibe now? I mean, it's all about having the right team. Sure. And I feel like having a, a team that really gets me and and is supportive of what I want to do. That would be ideal. It's just, it's hard to find. It's really hard to find your, your like crew in that way. It's like a marriage. Yeah. So when you have a manager, when you have a label, it really, it's a serious relationship, you know? And you can't just, I feel like I've been in a lot of kind of relationships in that sense that there's a, it's a little rocky. (laughs) And so I just really want to find champions. And if they're, if they're not champions, I'd rather just do it myself. That makes total sense. It's actually a very 
very logical and mature way of looking at it. And you're right. It is like a marriage. It's, it's, a, it's a relationship. And, you know, sometimes they work and laugh, last forever and you live happily ever after and until death do you part. And sometimes people get buried and divorced multiple times and end up finding the right thing later on down the road. So the last thing that you guys worked on together, you and Marshall, was that the Venom 2 song, Last One Standing? Yes. And how, what do you remember about about that record? Because that one came together in a sort of very, very odd set of circumstances, right? Yeah, totally. So this song, this hook actually uh, existed for a few years. And then out of nowhere, it got, you know, taken to be the, the end title for Venom 2. Just the hook and track and then they were like we need to put rappers on this and then so during that whole process we were like looking for rappers and then out of nowhere sony pictures was like we're actually not going to use the song anymore and i was like oh bummer because how long had you been thinking that they were using it by the time they came back and said psych we're not using it uh a couple months maybe And so we had been working on finding people to put on it and all this stuff. And then, yeah, it just fizzled out. And I was like, well, shit, this song's so good. What are we going to do with it? It sort of reawakened the idea of you being excited about the record. And now you're like, okay, well, if they're not going to use it, what am I going to do with it? Yeah, because we'd put more into the production and it was sounding really good. And I was like, okay, well, I don't think I've ever sent this one to Marshall. So I'm going to see if he likes it. And so I sent it to him and... There was just weird timing in the universe where I got a response from him and an email from uh, somebody telling me that Sony wants the the song back. They they were like, actually, we do want it. It was the same day that Marshall was like, I want it. I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, bad timing, not a good situation. So then what? So then I guess I reached out to you because I was like, Paul, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think what I said is, well, let's let Marshall do the record and maybe we'll have them use that version for the movie. Right. Yeah. I mean, I obviously my loyalties with Marshall. So I, I tried to say no to Sony Pictures, but they had already put the, the song to picture and for them to pull the song out of the movie at that point. And I don't know why they just assumed they could do that, but whatever. So they were like, we're going to have to push back the whole release date of the movie to change this song. They're not doing that. Yeah. And they were indicating that they weren't going to do that. Like daring me in a weird way to like <laughs> get litigious or something. They didn't say that, but I just felt those vibes. And I was like, fuck, I'm, I'm really fucked in this situation. So luckily Marshall, when he did his part, I mean, maybe you're who convinced him to, to let Sony pictures have it. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think he was rather than it being his record, he I think he just wanted the record to come out because he liked it. And it just became sort of the right answer. That was a little bit tense and tedious for a period of time. Yeah. Yeah. And so what do you guys think you're going to do now? I mean, you've got you've got this huge catalog. How, do you know how many songs total you guys have worked on together? Because I, I couldn't figure it out because there's you know songs you wrote that you didn't appear on, songs you appeared on. H- how many do you think it is? I honestly don't know. I think it's probably like 15. 
I've got, I think, 13, but that might not include a couple of things. So that's a lot. Yeah, I feel like it's like 15-ish. Yeah. I don't know. I'd have to count. And I don't know if there's anybody other than like Dr. Dre or, you know, 50. I don't really think that there's anybody else that's, that's, that's done that quite that much work with him as as a writer or vocalist. So it puts you in a class by yourself, which is why we are here today talking to you for the fall <laughs> pod. No, I think it's, it's, it's really amazing. And, you know, your, your career trajectory is, is fascinating. And, you know, I think far from over and um, just the way you guys connected and, and the work that you guys were able to do with each other has just been really tremendous. And, you know, I think that you're both fortunate to to have met each other and and to be able to have collaborated on so much stuff. So what do you want to do next? What is, how can we fulfill the wishes of Skylar Gray into the future? Shit, I don't know. I just want to keep making making art, you know? I just have so much fun doing it. I love being creative. I love performing. I love making music videos and just want to keep going, keep doing it. And is there any more wood chopping in your future? Wood chopping only for fun, not for necessity. All right. So wood chopping <laughs> is not out of necessity. It's only for fun. And oh, this is what I didn't ask you. I, I think you and I talked about it a little bit, but like, what did you do during the pandemic? I mean, you you recorded music and made music, but were you just like spending time outdoors? So Right before the pandemic hit, my fiance, Elliot, and I, we bought a house and a vineyard in Napa. So we have like 40 acres. We have cattle. It's really a special, beautiful place. And so <clears throat> while everybody was stuck in apartments in New York and stuff and not allowed to go outside, we had this huge <laughs> property to, to like play on. So we actually had quite a bit of fun during the pandemic. I know that sounds horrible to say, but it's true. <laughs> no, that's that's great. I mean, the timing. Yeah, that's that's very fortuitous and and glad that it worked out for you. And when it comes to the vineyards, are, are you able to produce wine from your vineyards? We didn't mean to get into the wine business. It happened kind of by accident because we just loved this property and this house so much. And it had eight and a half acres of Cabernet planted already. And so we, um, we recently hired these biodynamic farmers from France that are, uh, transforming our vineyard into this, you know, we're trying to go as organic as possible, biodynamic. So we actually bring the cows into the vineyard during the winter months. So they like put little holes in the ground and the rainwater sits in these little holes and creates these little, you know, ecosystems under the vines. So, so yeah, we're getting all, all crazy with it now. And so we're selling the, the grapes to these other winemakers that are going to be doing single vineyard wines. And then we'll be able to, we haven't even tasted our wine yet because previously the, the wine was sold to people who were just blending it in with a bunch of other grapes. Right. Um, so this year's vintage is going to be the first one we'll be able to taste just our vineyard. And in a couple of years, we'll probably start, you know, talking about doing a label of our own but we're baby steps. Wow. So I can't wait to try that. Have you, you've tried other wines that, that it's been blended into though, I'm sure, right? I don't know, actually. 
It was sold to Camus before. Well, that may, means that it's got to be pretty good because that's that's some good wine from what I know, my friend. <laughs> yeah. No, it's going to be really amazing. I have a good feeling about well, it. Well, listen, when you get done with it, make sure you send a bottle to the shady offices. Yeah, we'll we'll make you guys part of the club. Okay. I just want to say thank you for all that you've done and your contributions to Marshall's projects and to, you know, our whole world. And I should be thanking you, though, because, like, you guys have changed my life. Like, Listen, you know, it works both ways for sure. Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's Skylar Gray on the Paul Pod. Any last words, anything you want to say to the fans? Um, hope to see you on tour again or something. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Paul Pod and Skylar Gray. We'll catch you next time. Later. Later.